0: Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism podcast. My name is Mate Rigo and I have the pleasure to talk to an all-time friend and colleague, uh, Stephen Klein, uh, with whom we were both Max Weber Fellows in 2016-2017. Now, Steve is Assistant Professor of Politics, Political Theory at the University of Florida. Uh, He works on um, modern sociological and political theory, Uh, His works have been published at the Sociological Theory Journal, the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, and the Journal of Politics, and he has also written uh, more public-facing blogs and uh, posts about Polanyi, Karl Polanyi, and other thinkers, right? So today we are going to talk about uh, Steve's uh, new and sort of Uh, old research on Karl Polanyi and the relevance uh, that Polanyi might have today. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for making time.
1: I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation.
0: Great. So Karl Polanyi wrote The Great Transformation in the 1940s. It appeared in English in uh, 1944 and You know, because we really want to understand why so many people are picking up this book today, so it's probably a good idea to go through what Polanyi's argument is, right, in this hefty book.
1: Yeah, great. So um, uh, The Great Transformation, really, I feel like is what people look to in the centerpiece of Polanyi's thought, and it is both a very productive and very uh, frustrating book because he wrote it relatively quickly in the post-war period um and was drawing together so many different threads of theoretical political and historical argument but the central question that he was asking in that book is what explains the rise of laissez-faire capitalism in the 19th century and then it's rapid to collapse uh in the 19 uh early 20th century in the 19 teens and then the rise the rise of uh uh, anti-capitalist mm-hmm. forces in the interwar period. So that's really what he's trying to grasp. He's trying to understand what caused that collapse and um, and where should we go given that. And he's essentially arguing for what people would come to call a version of embedded uh, uh, econ- economics or a way of, as he would put it, reasserting societal and democratic needs over and against uh, the needs of the market. Um, and so... What he's most famous for though in in that book, the two arguments that he's most famous for is first that a pure market society is impossible because the three factors of production according to uh, mainstream economics, land, labor, and money, none of those three things will function as a commodity. And so the attempt to subordinate those factors of production to the price mechanism of the market will be impossible. And this is why he says the ideal of the market society where the the prices of all factors of production are determined by the market is a stark utopia. He thought that was a kind of impossible dream that was pursued in the 19th century. Um, And so so that's the first core argument, is to try to show how over and against defenders of laissez-faire, defenders of the market society that this dream was impossible and ultimately destructive. And so there is a kind of realism in Polanyi's Slot that markets need non-market uh, institutions to function and so they need, and so this aspiration of something like pure laissez-faire was impossible. So that's the first, mm-hmm. I think, central claim that he's trying to develop in the book. And so to do this, he engages with um, economic sociology and, he essentially, and economic theory, and essentially tries to demonstrate uh, why this is the case. So that's one argument he makes, which I think is really provocative and still really interesting to think about today. The second is the famous claim he makes that, laissez, uh, that laissez-faire was planned, but societal protection was spontaneous. And so here he's obviously challenging various um, views of the economy that view the emergence of the market society as somehow a natural or a, a anti- or apolitical phenomenon. And rather, he says that the interests of the state and certain classes in society were, were crucial in propelling the formation of this market society. But on the other hand, he says that there's a kind of societal counter reaction to that. And so various groups in society demand uh, protection from the uh, vagaries of market forces. And this is something that Polanyi calls the double movement. And so he says that even as markets in certain commodities were extended, at the same time there are restrictions of markets, in particular for the three commodities of land, labor, and money. And so applies is in particularly, particularly interested in is how, over time, various institutions came into existence which basically shielded these commodities from the forces of the market, such as labor unions, which uh, ensure that mean that labor does not receive a market uh, a market value essentially because it's determined by uh, the capacity of workers to go on strike then also something like the evolution of central banking which according to Polanyi protects certain groups from the effects of deflation so the the end of the gold standard marks mm-hmm. a movement away from a commodity understanding of money and towards a more direct directly political understanding of money and so when you take these two arguments together, the first, that land, labor, and money will never act like true commodities, and the second, that there's this double movement through which society tries to remove those commodities from the market. I think you get what a lot of people look to as a really powerful framework for understanding the politics of uh, the formation of, or the politics of capitalism, essentially, where certain groups in society push for the expansion of market, Rationalities in these mm-hmm. in these commodities, and then other groups in society try to resist the expansion of those market rationalities. This is this is this is a really um,
0: interesting and, and and great summary. What I was always wondering about, Polanyi, right? He was born in Austria Hungary, in Hungary more uh, specifically to a family of capitalists, right? I mean, yeah. um, his his father was a uh, was an investor. And um, and and the family uh, lived through a lot of crashes, uh, bankruptcy, right? And Polanyi became um, an academic, a writer. And uh, one thing that's sort of striking to me in, in this work is that its its primary examples are drawn from England, mm-hmm. uh, the Spienhamland laws, which were these poor laws trying to defend. Um, essentially the poor from high grain prices during the Napoleonic Wars, right? Uh, That ties in with the points that you mentioned about the double movement, right? So it seems to me that he uses England, but he means, sometimes means Austria-Hungary, or sometimes means Central Europe, right? A place where land wasn't sold until essentially the mid-19th century. It wasn't regarded as uh, any other type of a set, and there were more restrictions on labor and uh, and money as well. So I was just wondering whether we could um, use this as a segue to talking about the reception of this work. I mean, it, it appeared in English, right? The first publication was yeah. in, in New York City, right? So in America, what was, I mean, you know, if we could trace the reception of it from the mid 1940s until now, what are the major uh,
1: great uh, yeah, things you know, that you also see? To say A little bit about the kind of, so what you mentioned about his father and this looking towards England are both really interesting points in terms of the original context in which it came from. So I, I there's just a few very, I think, fascinating uh, facts about that that are also helpful for understanding it. And then the reception is also a really fascinating story as well. Um, so the two facts as may mentioned, so first, so his father was a, a relatively successful businessman, but then when Polanyi was, I can't remember the exact age, but kind of a late teens, early young adult, his father went bankrupt and his company went bankrupt. And part of why in Polanyi's eyes, his company went bankrupt is that he thought, so his father was very scrupulous when he started going into financial difficulties about repaying all of his debts. And so rather than trying to default or 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 renegotiate his debts, he really paid everything off. And then his family went through this Really traumatic bankruptcy, which was kind of a formative experience for Polanyi's life. And I think you can definitely see when he talks about the sort of destructive effects of deflation, um, the tension between the sort of imperatives of the market and people's lived experiences um, in terms of things like bankruptcy. You can certainly see how those sorts of human experiences led him to be very skeptical of, you could say, very functionalist arguments that basically say, you know, that creative destruction risk-taking, all these things are necessary for long-term economic growth, um, and people who don't enjoy it, you know, if you read Hayek, it's like if you don't, if you don't have the sort of character to, um, ex- to go through that, if you don't have a kind of um, uh, value mentality rather than a merit mentality, you're somehow an inferior sort of person, you can see where Polanyi was really skeptical of that, given his father's uh, experience and his experience growing up. The other thing is Polanyi was very self-conscious about kind of being caught between East and West. So he often said that he was torn between England and Russia in terms of his cultural and intellectual upbringing. So on the one hand, you know, was reading uh, Russian literature, but then always saw England as this beacon of a kind of liberal free society. And I think this is characteristic of a lot of Austro-Hungarian intellectuals of his own time. And um, one thing that also makes Polanyi's life and work really interesting is he was a contemporary of and acquaintance of a lot of the Austrian, uh, uh, what we would now call neoliberal scholars like Hayek. He studied with Karl Menger and, um, was friends or acquaintances with Hayek and von Mises. And so a lot of the reasons I think he writes about England is he's trying to refute the narrative that someone like Hayek or von Mises produces about the nature of, of capitalist society by showing how even in their kind of privileged case, which was the British laissez-faire society there's actually a lot more uh, demands for protectionism and anti-capitalist politics than they are willing to admit so he's coming out of this original context in Central Europe he emigrates to England and he doesn't actually have a PhD so he can't work in England but it's really well he's in England that he starts to develop the ideas that are going to become the great transformation and um, so the, the second reason so one reason he writes about the British case is because he's trying to refute Hayek and these other thinkers The second reason is he actually really comes to see the British labor movement and the British labor party as a really crucial post-war actor. And so part of the audience for what he's writing is to try to say to the British, look, you can become a leader in forging a kind of alternative on the one hand to the new American imperial uh, project, and then also to uh, the Soviet Union, these other models of uh, non-democratic, non-capitalist societies. But he eventually moves to the U.S. and publishes The Great Transformation in the U.S., and it's kind of a dud, I mean, to be honest. I mean, this is, he, there's a lot of hopes invested in it. His brother, Michael Polanyi, which is a whole other story because Carl Polanyi's brother, Michael Polanyi, um, was a founding member of the Mont Pelerin Society, was very involved in the other more conservative or neoliberal uh, views of the economy. You know, he says to Carl Polanyi, this is really your life statement the great transformations, and it just didn't have the effect and the impact that he and his brother had hoped that it would. And so instead, Polanyi basically turns to studying archaic economies and and develops this whole new research project on pre-modern forms of economic life and ends up being very influential in economic anthropology and economic sociology. Um, Rather than being a kind of rival, you could say, to someone like Keynes or Hayek, at the time in in reviving a certain view of uh the economy and so the great transformation i think is kind of you know it, it is out there and it's in the uh mix and people in sociology are reading it but it's really not until the 80s and really the 90s that people start looking to Polanyi's thought for crucial resources to the point that uh, this German economic sociologist Jens Becker famously says in an article, "We are all Polonians
0: now." Mm-hmm. Interesting, and
1: it's and it's really the you know I really think people took for granted. If you look at the discourse in the sixties and early seventies, people took for granted that Keynesianism, technocratic managerialism, had solved capitalism, and there was no one who was anticipating what essentially was the counter revolt against the post-war. Embedded economy settlement that begins in the you could say late 60s early 70s and then with the end of Bretton Woods when Nixon you know decides to leave and break the Bretton Woods system then all bets are off and we're back in some ways we're out of the sort of embedded capitalism existing under the American imperial hegemonic uh, political project. And we're now in this world that in some ways I think really resembles the period in which Polanyi is studying in the the late 19th and early 20th century. And you see a lot of similar dynamics. Suddenly the question of sort of what the scope of market structures in society ought to be is a really live political question. And um, uh, so that I think is the first reason Polanyi becomes really useful is he sort of provides a vocabulary for thinking about this dynamic. And then the second reason, and this is something I think that isn't appreciated with Polanyi, is the environmental movement and the need to incorporate into a theory of capitalism questions of environmentalism and um, sort of fictitious commodities in addition to labor. So I think one thing that people look to Polanyi for is he seems to capture a lot of the force of earlier Marxist accounts that focus on the effects of capitalism on labor, but then draws this really important parallel to something like land, and then that really plugs into a lot of people who want to examine how uh, capitalism or market systems presuppose uh, uh, certain non-market commodities like nature and have to commodify them even as they can't replenish them. So Polanyi ends up becoming a kind of, I would say, uh, a beacon for thinking about um, why is it that The politics of the scope of markets becomes such a live issue and how could we think about that politics in a way that doesn't just focus on sort of the organized working class in and of themselves that expands the scope to include nature and also tries to expand the scope to include global north south dynamics and global trade dynamics in a much more uh, expansive way Mm -hmm. Can we say that
0: the reason why it's Polanyi and not Marx that is experiencing a revival is that probably our times is more similar to, you know, the 1920s or the period of the First World War rather than the mid-19th century industrial society that Marx is describing. Is is that it?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting question about the extent to which Marx and Polanyi are so different. I mean, there's also there's a lot of evidence that Polanyi was a pretty committed Marxist thinker, at least in the pre-war period, and we're now able to we're getting a lot more of his pre-war pre-war writings available. There's also evidence that he um, excised more Marxist language in the Great Transformation uh, for probably political reasons, and so he uh, in earlier drafts talked about capitalism and the bourgeois and things like that much more directly. But yeah, I think so. I think there. I think there are a few reasons, though, that people look to Polanyi, I would say, maybe more than Marx. I think um, one is I one is this environmentalism concern and how he helps in- articulate that. Um, another is I, I think the, the conceptualization of the three fictitious commodities is just a really insightful um, uh, uh, progression in some ways of Marxist thought. So this idea that money as well as labor are both fictitious commodities uh, is really interesting. And then that also becomes a way, and this is what you're mentioning about the differences between the 1920s and say the the 19th century, is that in some ways Polanyi, he's less quick to reduce the state and politics to the economy. And so I think people saw him as maybe a less reductive theorist Mm -hmm. than Marx, and so Mm -hmm. more Able to allow for the kind of relative autonomy of the state and cross class coalitions. So Polanyi doesn't have, there's none of the lingering sort of Hegelianism of Marx mm-hmm. where the working class is the class in and of in and in for itself and has a kind of peculiar epistemic insight. So I'd say those are the good reasons that Polanyi is taken up. I do think there, you know, I think there are certain ways that Polanyi was read though that made him useful where he stood as a more moderate alternative to Marx. And I think this was one way of sort of positioning them where that, where Marx is kind of the theorist of some sort of complete transformation of capitalism and Polanyi's the theorist of tamed capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that's the correct reading of Polanyi, but I do also think this is the other reason that Polanyi's thought um, uh, became useful. And actually there's an interesting history um, in the U.S. Uh, with Polanyi's thought, where um, uh, uh, there were um, uh, theorists who are reading Polanyi, who's basically said, "Yeah, we agree with this. You know, this all sounds great. That's why we need to have, you know, a strong safety net, and that's, mm. and then we'll have the best capitalist society possible." And so there's there are people who are reading Polanyi as a kind of thinker of uh, as a theorist of saving capitalism from itself rather than, say, a more fundamental challenge to capitalism. And so I think there are, because Polanyi at times is very ambiguous about sort of what the ultimate end goal of his project is, he also becomes a kind of moderate alternative to Marx's thinking. Sure. And, but um, if we
0: take the binary of democracy versus markets seriously that he's trying to set up... Right. Uh, so then a, can exactly, democracy yeah. go ahead?
1: No. You. So I think I think this is where people maybe have misread Polanyi or downplayed aspects of Polanyi's thought, which is just how um, fundamentally he thinks that not markets. So he was a kind of market socialist, but that capitalism, that the the leaving kind of prior, major decisions about productive activities, the investment of uh, productive resources, the organization of labor, land, and money to the market and was deeply anti-democratic. And so for him, I think this is where he's much closer to Marx. He thinks there's a very deep and fundamental tension between capitalism and democracy. He doesn't necessarily think there's a contradiction, a deep contradiction between markets in general and democracy, and he certainly thinks that some forms of markets could be compatible with democracy, but capitalism, where you leave a large share of productive enterprises uh, to private owners to make decisions for themselves. He thinks that and democracy become deeply incompatible, mm-hmm. political, philosophical principles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Um, uh, and, go
0: yeah. ahead, go ahead.
1: No, and I think, and I think that's really where him and Marx end up converging to a large extent where there's less, uh, there are still points of disagreement and tension. He still thought Marx was a kind of overly economically reductive theorist. Marxists would think that Polanyi doesn't put sufficient emphasis on the kind of inevitability of class conflict under capitalism, which I think is a, is a reasonable uh, complaint at times in Polanyi's thought. So they, you know, there are certainly points of divergence, but I think on this point about the deep tensions between democracy and capitalism, there's a lot of agreement in their way of thinking about the world. I also think that's really fi- the final reason that Polanyi is sort of having a moment today, is... It's becoming more and more clear that the protection of the global trade and investment system that has arisen since the 1980s, that was a project born of uh, the very theorists that he was opposing. So as Quinn Slobodian has shown in the Globalists and other recent books like that, you know there's a deliberate project to build a non-democratic or liberal global economic order that could restrict the scope of action on the part of democratic states. And what we're seeing now is how that's not really a sustainable project, that uh, the demos will return and that people's demands for uh, collective control over or protection from these market forces is going to be an inevitable part of politics. And I think that's, again, where Polanyi is seen as a really prophetic and important figure. Right. Uh, So, I mean,
0: we could say that Marx and Polanyi are both sort of thinkers of hope, right? I mean, Marx clearly... Proposes a fairly optimist view of history and of the future. If you just look into the Communist Manifesto, I mean, it's clearly there. Um, for, with Polanyi, we've mentioned, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the call to to defend um, society from, you know, rapacious markets. Uh, but you mentioned about environmentalism. What are some, you know, let's say, if some people read Polanyi today as trying to find hope and solution for the future, be it the future of the best or the future of a more democratic or embedded capitalism? Can they find hope in this work?
1: Yeah, it's a really, you know, it's a question I, I grapple with because there are very optimistic moments in Polanyi and there are very pessimistic moments in Polanyi. I mean, he was a theorist who was also thinking about fascism and the total collapse of the European political and economic system and trying to figure out how that could happen and in this way Polanyi has interesting affinities with the more pessimistic currents of marxism like the frankfurt school and others who are trying to grapple with that but Polanyi, you know Polanyi really thinks that humans have moral and political agency and we can decide how to on some fundamental level we will have there will be moments in which we can decide how to organize our economic and political orders And I think that's where his hopefulness comes from. So that that people, you know, can reject a kind of economically deterministic, ideological and political worldview and come to deliberate choices about what they take to be a just or good society. So I think that is, and he never let go of that view of, of human society. And so even though there are aspects of his work that are somewhat, you could say historically, not deterministic, but trying to to understand historical pressure points, like the notion of the double movement and the protection of society. One point he always makes is that the, the, the reaction to the market can take many forms, and it can take a or the reaction to capitalism can take many forms. It can take a, a reactionary, conservative, kind of fascistic form, or it can take a progressive, democratic form. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to think that one will necessarily win out over the other. And this was something that manifested in his own work. He he tried to form a kind of third world, third way journal called Coexistence, which would provide an alternative to both uh, Soviet communism and, and American uh, capitalism. He saw there being a lot of potential hope in the politics of decolonization and the idea that the former colonial powers could try to forge some democratic alternative to both of those things. And so he was always a thinker who was looking for where the potential is for um, the formation of some alternative. I mean, he had his blind spots. He doesn't talk about uh, colonialism that in depth. He never talks about gender and the family and the role that plays in capitalism, which is where there's a lot of need for revision of his thought. Um, uh, But I think like Marx, and maybe in contrast to some more pessimistic European social theorists, he always thought that humans could alter the conditions under which we do politics. And that really, I think, is a kind of hopeful uh, message. Sure. Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground, but if, you know, if there is
0: anything you think um, you would like to add, here is the time.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think the. I'm sure I've the views of many that we're in a sort of very unusual historical moment where it seems like something has shifted that some taken for granted economic and political order isn't taken for granted anymore. And that, you know, the global economic system that was forged under the umbrella of American military and political power isn't so secure. And in some ways, that's a very uh, nerve-wracking fact. And I think there's a lot of reason to worry. But I also think that provides a historical opportunity to, to imagine or envision alternative ways of organizing the relationship between the economy and politics to thinking about how can we have a more egalitarian and democratic economic system. There's definitely a sense in which that, opportunity is there, and I think theorists like Polanyi, but not Polanyi alone, are going to be crucial for developing uh, a theoretical, normative, and political project that could be an alternative to um, authoritarianism on the one hand, and then this idea that we can just return to the status quo and everything will be fine on the other, because I think neither of those are really tenable uh, positions.
0: Sure. Stephen Klein, thank you so much for talking about Carl Polanyi today. Uh, please follow his uh, writings in journals or at the LA Review of Books, and um, hope to continue it uh, at some point. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Matthew. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about some of these things.